This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Wednesday, September the 27th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Better late than never. There was a fire drill in the building. There was an evacuation. And uh, we all got out safe and sound. We all got back in safe and sound. Thanks to the crew in the building and behind the scenes for doing some pivots today. And health and safety is important. So I'm feeling healthier and safetier on this Wednesday edition of the show. Coming up in this abbreviated edition of Now with Dave Brown, the UN Climate Ambition Summit wrapped up in New York last week. Journalist Arno Kopecki recaps the event. And... It's the season for fall flavors. Jenny Bovard shares her favorite drinks this time of year. So will I, by the way. I've got uh, some apple beverages that I very much enjoy in the fall season. But the show begins with the top story of the day, and it's all about housing. The federal government is unlocking another $20 billion in financing for the construction of rental housing across Canada. Finance Minister Krisha Freeland says this policy is an investment. This is fiscally responsible policy using the policy tools at our disposal. And this is a further measure in our broader and continuing campaign to build more homes for Canadians faster. Housing Minister Sean Fraser knows that time is of the essence on getting homes built. Our message to builders today is that it's time to get shovels in the ground. Uh, we are going to leverage all of the tools at our disposal to make it easier for you to say yes to build more homes for Canadians. We're going to address the specific challenges at the root of the housing crisis we're living through. British Columbia's housing minister, Ravi Kallen, still thinks Ottawa is dragging its feet. Well, every day we're waiting for Canada to make a decision. It's having huge impacts on our communities. Uh, we have people living in encampments. We have people living in parks. We have people that uh, are on the verge of losing their homes because of global inflation pressures. And so my message to Minister Fraser is we can't wait much longer. Uh, we need them to get into the game and, and get into the game in, in a hurry. BC unveiled its own housing targets for housing units built across 10 communities in the Vancouver and Victoria area. For example, the target calls for the city of Vancouver to build more than 28,000 housing units in the next five years. Speaking of British Columbia, there's an initiative in BC aimed at reducing the cost of taxis. But it's not available to everyone. The Taxi Saver program is designed for seniors and people with disabilities. Community reporter Amy Amanti has more details. Hey, good morning, Amy. Hey, good morning, Dave. So, Amy, let's talk about this Taxi Saver program. How is the program set up? Yeah, well, first of all, you have to qualify for the program, which means you have to qualify for what we call a handy pass. And typically a handy pass, well, I shouldn't say typically, but a handy pass means that you have difficulty accessing conventional transit. So that is for folks with disabilities and, and seniors. And when, we, when I say seniors, these are typically seniors that have some kind of disability as well. So if you can't access your traditional conventional bus or C bus or SkyTrain or rail system, and you need sort of a paratransit, so a handy dart, you get a handy pass. And if you qualify for a handy pass, you can qualify for a taxi saver program, which is essentially a coupon system for taxis. So the taxi saver is a voucher, and so you can purchase a taxi voucher booklet at a 50% discount. And so you pay for your taxi fare with a coupon. So when you say 50%, that's 50% of whatever the total is on the ride, correct? Exactly. So, for example, you would purchase a book, and I believe the value of the book is $80. So I buy a book for $80. There's $80 worth of coupons in there. Um, they come in denominations of $1, $2, and $5. So if I go into a taxi and my fare is $20, um, the, uh, the, the coupons, um, because I pay half the value for the book up front, 
right? Uh, the coupons actually are, are I pay 50% less the value. Okay. So I actually paid $20 worth of, of coupons, but I paid 50% discount on the book. Right, on the front end, on the front end. Okay, right. I get it, I get it. Uh, any, what are, what's some of the fine prints here? What are some of the rules that are maybe need to know? Yeah, so some of the rules that you need to know are uh, that they're not um, convertible to cash. So if you're going to use them in a taxi, for example, um, if you your fare is $5.80, um, you can give them $6 worth of, of, of taxi coupons, but they won't give you any change back, right? And if you don't have correct denominations, so if you give them two fives, they're not going to give you $4 back. So you'll lose that money if you don't have correct change. Um, I always just round it up and give them six bucks if, if, if I can do that right because for me i'm not going to pull out the change but some people do that uh you can't use them for tip value so uh, if your fare is six dollars and you want to leave them a ten dollar tip it or a five dollar tip you can't use them for tip value um you can't transfer them to another person so i can't say hey friend hey dave you know you're coming to visit me and i'm going to give you a my taxi voucher so that you can get home after our uh our, after our visit together because on the back of the coupons you put your handy pass card number okay on okay and the taxi driver is supposed to verify my card with my picture on it when i give him my coupons right so that he can verify that yes i'm amy with card number xyz and those are my coupons and they go on the back right so because there has been a lot of that because this is what happens is people with disabilities have found ways of amy's gonna buy a book of tickets and then she's gonna sell them to dave because dave uses more taxis <laughs> than amy does right so there has been this uh, this way of being able to share our booklets because there you can only purchase two booklets a month right, there, right. there's a limited quantity of booklets that you can purchase so there are a few sort of uh, a caveats to this program. Amy, I like that you've identified that I'm shady. I, I, it's good. It's, 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 you've known me for a couple of years now. You've put it together. That Dave always you loves and I doing something. You join the conspiracy together, right? <laughs> I, I always love doing something on the gray market when I can. Amy, I'm going to give out the uh, points of contact here. If people do want to learn more, you can send mm -hmm. an email to taxi underscore saver at bctransit.com. Taxi underscore saver at bctransit.com. Or you can visit bctransit.com, bctransit.com, or you can visit the blog after the show, ami.ca slash now. Amy, I appreciate this abbreviated appearance. Thank you so much for making a little time today. It's much appreciated. You're welcome, Dave. Uh, enjoy the abbreviated show. Uh, the abbreviated show. Uh, we're, I'm earning all my money today in a condensed manner. Amy Amanti is a community reporter in Vancouver, British Columbia. Amanda Shikarchi has the entertainment report. Amanda, the world of sports and entertainment continue to intersect. Yes, thank you, Dave. So after Taylor Swift's appearance at Sunday's NFL football game, Travis Kelce jersey sales rose over 400%. Taylor was spotted next to Kelce's mother, Donna, as they watched the Kansas City Chiefs play against the Chicago Bears. The Sportswear and merchandise company Fanatics revealed that Kels was amongst the top five selling players on Sunday. So Dave, how does celebrity influence affect marketing and sales both directly and indirectly? Amanda, I had a strong sense that the Travis Kelsey jerseys were going to deal with a massive spike this week with the Swifties getting involved and the reported uh, dating of Taylor Swifty, uh, Taylor Swifty, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. I had a sense this was going to happen. Uh, Amanda, there's no doubt that when you've got someone like Taylor Swift, who has not just developed her own subculture, but a passionate, passionate fan base, she can do all kinds of stuff to drive influence. Like, I know the word influencer gets tossed around maybe a little bit flippantly, but someone like Taylor Swift has deep, deep influence. I'm going to give you some more stats here, Amanda. Fox, which aired the game on Sunday in the 4 o'clock Eastern window, they reported some really interesting ratings. Number one, they had 24 million people watch the game on Sunday. That is the most people who've watched a football game all year. So right there, that's a really impressive thing. That is probably a bit of the Taylor bump. But where you really find it is at 4 o'clock on Sunday through to the end of the game, 
women aged 12 to 18, women aged 18 to 34, and women aged 18 to 49. That football game was the number one demographic for women, uh, number one ratings in the demographic for all those groups of women. There's no doubt in my mind, Amanda, that Taylor Swift drove those ratings on Sunday in a big way, and I bet you there's a lot of people in the football world, which, by the way, is America's most popular sport, thinking, how can we leverage this a little bit more? Yeah, I totally agree with all of that. And I definitely think that it's pretty crazy how over the years we just keep seeing the power of celebrity influencing more and more. So on that note, how has the celebrity endorsement affected your personal life when deciding oh. whether to purchase a product? Oh, Amanda, I'd like to think that it doesn't. Off the top of my brain, I don't necessarily connect something that I buy to a celebrity, but that could be me thinking that I'm smarter than I am. I bet you I'm influenced by celebrity endorsements in some way, shape, or form. What about you? So I usually am not influenced by them however a few years ago i was dipping my toe into skincare and makeup and as one does you go on youtube and watch different tutorials so i had an eyeshadow pal palette or a hydrating mist spray that were recommended through celebrity youtube tutorials and i was like well if they liked it i should give it a try uh, okay, Amanda, you got to reveal to me who was the celebrity who got you? Because I know there's a couple celebrities who are big in the makeup industry. For example, uh, Rihanna has Fenty, her brand, and I can't remember the name of Selena Gomez's brand, but uh, one of my oh, friends. Oh, yeah, Rare Beauty. Rare That's Beauty. Um, yeah, I, I like their stuff. But I was watching a tutorial that Nina Dobrev did, and she talked about this eyeshadow that she liked. Um, so I was like, I need to try this palette. And then the skincare stuff, Alessia Cara did a review of the products she liked. So she talked about one. I was like, oh, I need to try this. Amanda, uh I'm, I'm looking for you for a little bit of insight on this one, because as you know, I'm kind of an entertainment guy, but I'm not a real celebrity gossip person. But I wonder if, based on your question of how celebrity or how endorsements work on me, does buying hockey jerseys and football hats and caps, like, does the sports memorabilia I count as being influenced by celebrity endorsement? I feel like maybe it does. I feel like it does too because you're buying them because you love that player and you want to support them by buying their merchandise. Okay, all right, there you go. The verdict is in. Dave Brown, not as smart as he thinks, not as not as capable of fighting off advertising influence as he wants to be. Amanda, thank you for this. Thank you for hanging out a little bit later today as part of the Condensed Show. Thank you so much. Talk to you tomorrow. That's Amanda Shikarchi with the Entertainment Report. Let's go from a story about sports and entertainment to just straight up talking about sports with Brock Richardson. Brock, let's chat about Canadian women's soccer. I've got some clips here because Canada's women's soccer team has qualified for the 2024 Olympics. Canada beat Jamaica 2-1 last night for a 4-1 aggregate victory in their qualifying series. Forward Adriana Leone reflects on the big win. Oh my God, it means everything to, to be able to go back to the Olympics and defend our gold medal. It's, you know, everything we wanted and, and hopefully... Yeah, just go out all, <laughs> go to the Olympics firing and ready to bring home another gold medal. Defender Shalina Shadorsky feels qualifying represents a huge bounce back for the squad. There's a few words that can describe just everything the team has been through, the ups and downs of, you know, results at the World Cup, but I think the resilience everyone showed um, and just the team spirit to come back um, in a tough game tonight. Head coach Bev Priestman expressed a lot of love for her team. I've been on a journey now with a group of players who've had the ultimate high, probably had the ultimate low, and then I've seen them come out swinging. And I think as a coach, I said to them before that, yeah, you might play good football, you might not, but the bit that inspires me about the group is character, fights, hard work, working for the person next to you. Brock, you and I uh, had a pretty sour taste in our mouth the morning Canada got knocked out by Australia in the Women's World Cup. This makes it feel a little bit better. A nice little mouthwash here knowing they're going to the Olympics next year. It, it does, and I got to tell you, I could listen to Bev talk all day. 
I love the accent. I don't know what it is about accents, but just you know, coaches yeah. and accents are pretty cool. But beautiful, yeah. be- be- I'll stop you there. Be- beautiful voice on Bev Priestman with the accent. Great communicator. There, yeah, there's something really special about Bev Priestman. No doubt about it. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's a good thing. Um, having said that, I, this is a big moment, and as as you aptly point out, I mean, we were we were all pretty pretty ba- pretty sad about the World Cup and what happened because we had big expectations, mm-hmm. and they turned it around. And to to come off of an event that didn't go your way, and then turn around and pick yourself off the mat and say we're gonna do this, I, I love it. I'm happy about it. It's tough to uh, qualify for the Olympics to begin with period full stop and so the fact that you did this is uh real good and i have to give a little bit of love to uh, christine sinclair who uh, stuck with the team through this window said yeah. she wanted to get them qualified and she did so good honor for doing that she accomplished her goal for this window and it looks good uh i think for the whole team to say look i want to get you guys over the hump and make sure that you qualify and um you know do this and again dave i think this just goes back to the fact that things didn't go well at the World Cup, and she kind of had a bitter taste in her own yeah, mouth. And said, yeah. I, I can't, I can't retire like that. It's a real testament, Brock. Time is a flat circle. It's stunning to think that that knockout of the World Cup was only about seven or eight weeks ago. So for them to pick themselves up off the mat, as you pointed out, it does show a lot of character for this team because they could have thrown in the towel and said, hey, we're not being paid enough. Soccer Canada's on the verge of bankruptcy. We're done with this. We're bored. We're sick of this. Nah, man, pride kicked in. And like they kicked some serious butt in this qualifying round. And you have to look past the drama that is in this case soccer canada when you are representing an organization and the organization fronts you know your country you do have to you know obviously follow them to a point but you need to also represent what's on your chest rather than the organization and what's on your chest is canada and i think that's what they've done and it's a lot harder than people may think because when your organization isn't necessarily backing you and they're openly showing it to you that's really tough so credit to the women for doing what they did Brock, it's a little bit less than a year to Paris at this point for the Olympics. I've got to say my excitement's already there. The Canadian women's soccer team have qualified. We know about the growth and evolution of Canadian women's swimming in the last couple of years, bringing home all sorts of hardware. We're well aware the Canadian men's basketball team is going to be playing in that tournament. Certainly a lot of great Paralympians making a return for the Paralympic side of the equation. Brock, we're a little bit less than a year away, but are you already there? You're already excited? You're already buzzing for the Olympics? I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to tell you that we are going to have a record number of medals whoa, for Canada. Whoa. In Paris. I think this is where we're going to go. We often see, you know, big numbers at the Winter Olympic Games and people say, oh, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do as Canada in the winter. I think we're going to see a pretty significant number of medals in Canada for the Summer Olympics. So, yes, I am fired up for this one. Brock Richardson going out on a ledge. I love it. Brock, have a great day, man. Always great chatting with you. You too. That's Brock Richardson with a sports chat coming up after the break. The UN Climate Ambition Summit wrapped up in New York last week. Journalist Arno Kopecki recaps the event. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There's always a lot happening around the climate change file. The United Nations held the Climate Ambition Summit last week. There were also protests all over the world. Journalist Arno Kopecki was at the protest in Vancouver. Hello, Arno. Hello, Dave Brown. Arno. How I, I'm always interested in talking about these protests. What was yeah. the vibe like at the Vancouver protest? You know, it was a really good vibe. It was it was joyous. I, I myself have a, a ambivalent relationship to activism and, and protests, and have tended to just sort of cover them as a journalist and be a part. And and this time though, I was like, you know what? Uh, 
screw that. I'm just going to join the marchers. So I went with my family, my daughter, my wife, and we drew placards. My daughter's seven years old. Some of her friends were there and we marched. Uh, we filled city blocks. There was 5,000 people and carnival bands and costumes and great signage, really clever, witty stuff. Uh, so it was, you know, we were surrounded by like-minded people. It was joyous. Uh, also, there was some righteous anger. Yeah, perfect sign there. You know, lots of that kind of stuff. So it was, it was nice. It was really good to be a part of that. Uh, it, that's my like immediate, you know, in a total vacuum of context, uh, it was nice to be surrounded by thousands mm. of people who are like-minded and, and share the concern that I have for the climate. I'm just going to reference the sign that you referenced that popped up on screen there, a little described video yeah. for uh, folks at home. It was actually, it was an image of somebody holding a sign uh, that said, I'm with her, with an arrow that pointed to the earth, as in uh, I'm with her, yeah. Mother Earth. Really, really quite clever there. There's no doubt uh, about that one. So, Arno, I remember... No, okay, This first of all, I'm very upset by the passage of time. 2019, those were the big Greta <laughs> yes. Thunberg youth protests. I cannot believe it's been four years. I'm very upset about this. But how did this protest compare to some of those big protests that took, uh, took place in 2019? Right, well, the numbers are sort of distressing all around, not just the passage of time, but the, the diminution of size of these protests. You're right, 2019 was the last big global protest that happened uh, exactly as this year's was uh, in advance of a UN Climate Ambition Summit. And so in 2019, Greta Thunberg was headlining in New York, which was the epicenter then as now uh, of this global strike. So there was 500, this year there was about 500 cities that took part. Um, it was much smaller this year than in 2019. In Vancouver, uh, there was 5,000 people who came out this year uh, in 2019, there had been 100,000 people, so, you know, 120th. Wow. And we saw a similar, maybe not quite that scale of reduction, but definitely a similar reduction everywhere. New York uh, was about 75,000 people came out this year uh, compared to 250,000, they estimated, in, in 2019. Um, so just a general decline, and it really showed the toll that the pandemic has taken um, on organizing capacity, on people's will, uh, you know, there's, it's not just the pandemic, there's all, there's a housing crisis, there's inflation, there's so many things going on right now. Um, so I think it, but the movement has been sapped of its energy is one mm. way of looking at it. And another way is to say, well, this, nobody was expecting this year to be as big as, as 2019. Greta Thunberg has also stepped out. I think she doesn't want to be the cult leader. She wants the movement to sort of have its own life and not be all about her, which yeah, I think everybody yeah. really respects. Um, but, you know, you could see the loss of, of that and the, the toll of the pandemic. And so I think, the, you know, the positive spin, uh, and I don't think it's just spin, I think it's real, is, is that um, the movement is rebuilding. And this was its first salvo, and they did succeed. I can't think of another cause or movement uh, that can bring protesters out in 500 cities all around the world. And thousands, some of them hundreds, you know, some cities had massive protests. So it wasn't nothing by any means. Uh, but it was also somewhat discouraging after, especially after the summer that we just had, I think, which was just such a brutal, like really almost violent summer of, of climate impacts and, and people all over the world, certainly all over North America, were, were, you know, it was front and center for so many of us. And so I think some of us were hoping for a, a bit more, but also, um, you know, that that's sort of the, the balance that I, when I look back on it, I'm like, well, it wasn't awful. Um, it was actually quite good. It could have been better. Yeah, it's a matter of scale and relativity, right? That maybe the yeah. movement not, might not be as front and center as it was in 2019. I remember yeah. the day of the protest in 2019 of the student strikes. I oh, took yes. Ottawa's brand new LRT to head downtown to go observe it and go take okay. part in it. And I thought to myself, look at this beautiful new piece of public transportation and all these young <laughs> people going down there. And I'm young yeah. too, because I'm only 35, you know, I still have a little youth left in me and now all of a sudden four years later it's an LRT that never works and a, and a movement that at least has at least like lost a little momentum right I don't mean to be oh diminishing God. I don't mean to get in the way of your optimism but it feels like it's a diminishing sort of optimism oh yeah I mean the the movement has definitely lost its momentum I, I think even the organ you know I know that the organizers agreed nobody's nobody really disputes that and uh so the question now is can they get it back and then and then always the question is you know what impact do these movements even have you know um what did it have in 2019 what difference do these things make and so mm. that's something I've been thinking a lot about yeah 
let's let's talk about the UN Climate Ambition Summit itself. What are some of your sure. big t- big takeaways from the events? Well, you know, so the the um, Climate Ambition Summit was uh, embedded within the UN General Assembly meeting uh, that was going on all week, and Antonio General uh, Antonio Guterres, who is who is the sort of the climate chief at the UN, he's the I see him as this sort of uh, the shepherd, this this border collie who's really constantly trying to like get these leaders to sit down and 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 think big and and make and get more aggressive and and so he organized this climate ambition summit only 34 countries were invited to take part and they were specifically selected as the countries who have the biggest uh, goals canada made it in there which surprised some because of we are also uh, one of the biggest, you know, expanders. We're the fourth biggest producer of oil and gas, and our production is expanding faster than anybody else except the United States, which was not invited. Um, so the purpose of the meeting was to sort of bring some leaders together, get them to make harder promises, and get real in advance of the next big UN climate meeting, which is happening in two months in Dubai, COP. Uh, COP 28. It is now the 28th of these meetings. We've been doing this for 28 years. If you don't want to count the years, try that. Um, and so, you know, what, what what's the takeaway? You know, Canada was both uh, chastised very publicly for its, its expanding fossil fuel production, but also Trudeau uh, agreed to commit and he was sort of pressured to commit on uh, putting a firm cap on emissions, which he's been promising to do for two years. And now he said, okay, by the end of this year, we will table legislation to cap emissions in this country. Hmm. Um, a lot of those leaders actually spoke about fossil fuels and the need to wind down fossil fuels, which is language that has not been part of this process at the UN. If you read the Paris Agreement, the word fossil fuel, does those words do not appear anywhere in the Paris Agreement. They just talk about emissions. Right. And, you know, they, they skirt around that issue for very real political reasons. And so this year, though, uh, you had a number of presidents from Colombia and Chile and Spain. Uh, Colombia is a big oil and gas producer, so it was notable to hear the president of Colombia say, we need to wind down fossil fuel production. And that kind of language was coming up more than it ever has before. Mm. Yeah, even, uh, even going into the summit, the new president of Brazil said, hey, we're going to revisit some of our climate goals as well along deforestation yeah. in the Amazon. So again, that, that right. shift is clearly existing, um, sometimes depending on political leanings based on the country. But maybe we'll just put Definitely. a pin on that thought because I don't want to talk about politicians. <laughs> I want to talk about the courts because there is some really interesting stuff going mm-hmm. on on the judicial side in climate change. Yeah. California yeah. announced they intend to sue the world's biggest oil manufacturers. They made that announcement during the summit. You've got six young people in Europe right now taking countries' governments yeah. to court for lack of action. Yeah. That's also happened in a couple states in the United States as well. But let's focus on the California side of this. What's the breakdown of their case? Yeah, so California is suing the five biggest oil companies, five of the biggest oil companies on Earth, including Exxon, Shell, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, uh, and one other that is escaping me at the moment. Um and it is a mass, not the first lawsuit of its kind, but by far the biggest. Have a, a state, you know, California is the fifth biggest economy in the world. Uh, they have enormous resources to throw in this court case. I don't mean to to, to denigrate uh, the other court cases that are out there, but if you're Exxon, you're going to be much more afraid of the state of California than you are of, of five high school students. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so California and the, the the governor of California, we don't need to talk about politicians, but it's worth noting that the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, is leading the charge on this. He was speaking at that U.N. assembly uh, at the Climate Ambition Summit, laying out in very just scathing terms how uh, aggressive they are going to be and that this can move the needle. And the basis of the case is basically that uh, California is suing these companies for having lied and spread disinformation about climate change and the impact of combusting fossil fuels that their own scientists and their own research showed has shown for decades uh, what the impacts are going to be of continued fossil fuel consumption. And they buried that knowledge and hid it and actively spread disinformation about it in exactly the same way that tobacco companies did for the link between smoking and cancer. So there's a really direct analogy here. And it was ultimately these huge lawsuits that really brought big tobacco down. And the reason that people, you know, smoke a lot less and that big tobacco is is no longer nearly as big as it was, was these huge lawsuits that found them guilty of those lies. And so now you have the state of California that is suing these huge companies, Exxon, Shell, Chevron, 
BP. These are massive, massive global mm-hmm. companies, mm-hmm. and it takes a state like California. You know, you need a jurisdiction of that size with those resources to take them on, and that will open the gates. You know, if they they haven't put a number on it, they've they've said you know it's going to be a big number, but they're still working out what what how much they're going to sue yeah. for. But that's the that that is at the heart of the case that they are saying you guys have lied about what you knew and and when you knew it and you have actively spread disinformation and that's fraudulent and that's illegal and we're suing you for it. California becomes a very interesting case study on climate change because it is a coastal mm-hmm. community. So by being a coastal state right away, you know the ocean levels is going to be a big concern. But they're also Definitely. a massive agricultural state. One third yeah. of uh, vegetables produced in the United States are grown in California. Yeah. Two thirds of fruit produced in the United States are grown in California. So when you talk about drought and other issues that are going to come alongside oh, yeah. climate change, alongside things like forest fire, you can really see where they have a vested stake in this conversation. Totally. I think they're so they're such an emblematic state because they are both hardest hit for the reasons you just mentioned. You know, the Colorado River is drying up dramatically like that farming situation is in deep trouble. Uh, their fires uh, have been crazy these last 10 years. They're they're on the sea level. The sea levels are rising. And they are also a state that has been built by oil profits. Uh, Chevron is based in California. Right. Uh, Los Angeles used to be a sea of oil dairies like they're California has produced a ton of oil in their history. Now it's Hollywood and tech. But uh, before Hollywood and tech, there was oil. That's what got California going. So, And they still produce a lot of it. Um, yeah. So it, it's interesting. You know, I think that really uh, speaks volumes. It's, it's, I think, easier to take a, a racist stance against climate change when you don't have any money or history of producing fossil fuels. But when you do, um, it, it really sends an even stronger message, one that I, I hope Canada is listening to. <laughs> Arno, thank you for this. Your insight on these issues is always so appreciated. Have a great day out there in British Columbia. Awesome. Thanks, Dave. You too. That's Arno Kopecki, a journalist based in BC. Coming up next, let's have a little bit of fun. It's the season for fall flavors. Jenny Bovard will share her favorite drinks this time of year, and so will I. Got a sneaking suspicion that apples are going to be involved. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There are all sorts of interesting tourist attractions across the country. You may think of natural beauties like Niagara Falls. You also might think of more somber attractions like a war memorial. There's also some odd stuff like the giant apple in Coburn, Ontario. Jenny Bovard has observed an odd attraction, a unique attraction in her neighborhood, or at least something that has a little bit of a strange behavior attached to it. Jenny is the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. Hey, good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Dave. So, Jenny, what's the tourist attraction in your neck of the woods in Halifax that maybe strikes you as a bit odd? Dave, you might have heard of a little ocean liner called the Titanic. I would assume probably (laughs) many of us have. It sank in the Atlantic Ocean in 1912 following a collision with an iceberg, for those who don't know. And in my area of the north end of Halifax, the Fairview Lawn Cemetery is the final resting place for over 100 of the casualties of the Titanic. And that's more grave sites than any other cemetery in the world for Titanic casualties. Now, interesting fact, yes, perhaps, but to me, it doesn't shout tourist attraction, and I find it the strangest thing. But the constant daily stream of tour buses, which, by the way, have not settled down with the end of the summer, there's a constant stream of these tour buses lining the block. Some, Many of them are double-decker buses. Mm. And there are hordes of people filling the cemetery. Th- these, these sightings are telling me I have the unpopular opinion, clearly. I've seen up to seven buses lining the block at any one time. And when I witness this, a lot of thoughts come to mind. I'll keep most of them to myself because they're not very nice. But... A particular thing that pops into my brain is I if if I ever die in a significant event like the Titanic, please do not allow me to become a tourist attraction mm-hmm. message mm-hmm. to my loved ones. That is 
what I think about when I see all of these people filling the cemetery. Yeah, Jenny, I, I think I understand how people might want to visit a more general memorial monument. I know the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. was a very powerful experience for me, but I feel like going to a cemetery is a little bit much. Where do you think the fascination comes from? Well, I don't have any hard evidence on this, but I would wager the popularity of this this cemetery it, it probably saw a massive jump thanks to james cameron and the wildly successful 1997 yeah. film also named titanic i just i i don't again i don't know the history of how popular this was before that happened but because there's just simply no way that all of those people on those tour buses have a personal connection to someone affected by the titanic what you're describing historical war memorials these these are different to what i feel i'm experiencing and another interesting fact that i well i find it interesting sir charles tupper is buried in this same area and nobody goes to see him uh, jenny forgive my ignorance uh who is that Oh, he's one of the fathers of Confederation. Oh, well, there it is. See, look at look at, look at ignorant Dave over here. Look at ignorant Dave. That's uh, going to become a theme uh, of this of this segment. Uh, Jenny, you mentioned you've said to your loved ones, "Don't turn me into a tourist attraction uh, when I pass away." While you and I are talking about death, as I'm trying to grapple with a midlife crisis, you're making me talk about death. Very kind of you. Uh, what do you think you would actually want done with uh, your final wishes? You know, what, what's Jenny Bovard's final resting place? What are some options here? Dave, there are so many options, and like you, I'm at a point in my life where I need to start thinking about these things. I don't want to be disturbed by tourists, so yes, I'm looking into them. Some of the more interesting options I've come across uh, would be creating a diamond from my cremated ashes. Ooh. Pretty cool. You can wear me anywhere, right? I don't think I can afford that one. I haven't explored the pricing all that much. But I also like the idea of maybe mixing my ashes into the soil where a tree is then planted a really oh, nice like that. place. That's beautiful. Right? But with my luck, Dave, a hurricane would come along and well, yeah. no more tree. <laughs> right, right. So maybe something more sturdy. <laughs> hey, what, what about something like, what about something even more unique? Like my, my mom always jokes she's going to get my dad stuffed and mounted and put on a chair. But what about something like a little bit more musical? Well, the option that really speaks to me most is a service that presses your cremated uh, remains into a playable vinyl record. There is a company based in the UK. They're called And Vinyly, which is oh, so very good. creative, right? So you can good. put whatever you like on the vinyl record, Dave. You can put a personal message, perhaps humorous, perhaps haunting. I don't know. Your choice. Uh, and your loved ones can play back whatever you choose to put on there it can be a nice selection of songs that you really enjoy that you share with the people in your life and the people that you expect to go back and listen to that record so i think that would probably be my choice oh my gosh my ashes can be pressed into a mixtape for all the mixtape that i gave people for all these years that could be my final wish i like that one that's way better than my idea of being put onto a funeral pyre pushed into the middle of the lake and set on fire so uh you know i think that's a little bit more uh, tasteful and nice okay jenny enough talk about death we got to be quick on this one but let's move into a conversation about beverages for the fall season of the non-alcoholic variety play a game of what are you drinking jenny this time of year is a fresh apple season for me our uh, director anastasia brought in freshly picked apples the other day that were delicious and one of the things i love about going to these apple orchards is you get that fresh apple cider that's like maybe a little bit thicker than my typical taste for apple juice but once a year i like to chug about a liter of it and feel miserable about myself as it tastes so good what are you drinking in the fall Oh, my my cheeks are puckering just thinking about apple cider. It, yeah, and apple cider season is upon us. We've got some beautiful stuff here in Nova Scotia in that realm. But my guilty pleasure right now is from Starbucks. Good old Starbies. I am loving. <laughs> I'm a little bit basic sometimes, Dave. You didn't know that. Now, uh, the iced apple crisp oat shaken espresso not only is it a mouthful to say but it is delicious it's a cold drink but my desert loving lactose intolerant heart just melts for this one it's made with oat milk uh so 
easy on the guts if you are like me. And it even tastes really good half sweet. So if you don't want as much sugar, you can ask for it half sweet. And that's just basically half of that sugary flavor syrup. Highly recommend it, guys. Jenny, hit me with that uh, full title of that drink one more time because it is a mouthful. Oh, no. <laughs> it's the Iced Apple Crisp Oat Shaken Espresso. Okay. All right. You're kind of talking my language here. There are a couple <laughs> words you used there that I really like, including apple and espresso <laughs> and ice. These, you can these taste are my things. the espresso, Dave. You can taste the espresso. <laughs> okay, Jenny, we've only got about a minute left here, but I need to confess something to you. People in my life keep talking to me about kombucha as a drink in the fall. I have no idea what it is. What is it? So kombucha is a fermented drink. Uh, it's lightly effervescent. So think a little bit fizzy. And it's basically a sweetened black tea drink. It's flavored with juices and spices and other flavorings to make it a little bit more interesting on, on the palate. Now it's purported to have like a bunch of health benefits. We won't get into that, but I have a confession. I hated it when I first tried kombucha. I tried it at a music festival, possibly not the best place to try anything right, for the first right. time, but it was way too earthy. And like, I don't want to say it tasted like dirt, but it had, it was way too earthy for me, but I've recently circled back and tried a couple of the canned options while out running errands and just so super parched. All of the bottled and canned stuff I was looking at was so high in sugar and the kombucha is so much lower in sugar. And so I thought I'd give it a try and I have been converted. I oh. am loving the kombucha. I grab one almost every time I'm out running errands now and it's lower in sugar than a lot of those bottled Okay. Okay. Yeah. The way the way you describe it sounds like it might actually work on my taste palette, but but when they put a picture up on screen, it looked a little too thick for my taste. The texture seemed a little odd. The effervescence, the fizziness, for me, the, the more of that there is, the less of that earthy, gritty texture you recognize. Okay, okay. Jenny, thank you for talking about death and tasty treats. Always great catching up. Fun potpourri today. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> That's Jenny Bovard, host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. Coming up after the break, you'll find out what's coming up on Kelly and Rumya this afternoon. And Alex Smythe has some questions all about a lawsuit being brought against Amazon. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's been an abbreviated edition of the show due to a fire drill in the uh, shops at Don Mills over here at AMI-HQ. It's still been a lot of fun, packing a lot into one hour. But if you feel like a two-hour show is more your speed, while well, 2 p.m. Eastern time today, Kelly and Ramya hit the airwaves on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. And Ramya Amuthan has a preview of what's coming up. Hey, good morning, Ramya. Morning, Dave. Yeah, bar any fire drills or other things that may go on, we will have a two-hour show no, today. I, I, have, I have put my foot down. I said no more fire drills. No more. We're just going to burn to death if we need to the next time. Do it at 1 p.m. if you must. Please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're talking about the writer's strike. Uh, it's tentatively over in Hollywood. We'll see what's going on over there with Corinne Van Dusen on our uh, entertainment report. And CNIB has two big events coming up in specifically um, uh, in Toronto. And so Stephen Ricci, our community reporter, is going to tell us more about that. Mm -hmm. And Septus Awareness Month is September. It's happening in September. So registered nurse Leslie DePoe is bringing up this topic today. Oh, right on. Always a great show, and hopefully you can use all two hours to your full advantage. Ramya, thank you for this. Don't go too far, though, because Alex Smythe, you've got a roundtable topic for Nazreen, myself, and Ramya, all about some legal trouble for Amazon, the giant river retailer, as I like to call them on the air. Yeah, Dave. Uh, specifically, right now, their legal trouble is south of the border as mm. the U.S. Federal Trade Commission and 17 states have filed antitrust lawsuits against the company. Lisa Dwyer has the details. 
The lawsuit also says that Amazon buries listings offered at lower prices on other sites while charging sellers high fees, forcing merchants to raise their prices on the platform as well as on other e-commerce sites in order to keep their products competitive on Amazon. Some estimates show Amazon controls about 40 percent of the e-commerce market. Amazon says the FTC is wrong on the facts and the law. I'm Lisa Dwyer. So the fact that Amazon is being sued by the FTC, along with 17 states, that is huge in my opinion. And then I wanted to bring this to the round table and find out, do all these lawsuits, all this legal trouble, does it impact your relationship with Amazon at all? Nisreen, let's start with you. It really doesn't, to be honest with you. Um, I feel like I've had a good relationship with Amazon, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Uh, I've been very loyal considering, as I mentioned to Dave, I bought two things this week and it's only Wednesday and I'm still, I still have some things in my cart that I'm like, should I, should I not? But I have an excuse right now. I'm moving into a new place. So I feel like that's a pretty good excuse right now. Yeah. You, so need, after, you, you need toilet yeah. brushes. You need toilet brushes and plungers exactly. and Drano. Exactly. That's what I'm buying. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. sure. Um, moving on. <laughs> uh, Alex, uh, it, it's a, it's a tough question, right? Because a lawsuit like this, an antitrust lawsuit, doesn't necessarily move the needle for me. I would argue that some of the criticisms that Amazon faces about labor rights and in relations with their employees might move the needle for me, but it also really hasn't. I think that when you're talking about cases of economic context rather than human rights context, I'm going to be less movable or malleable because the reality is their service is just so easy to use. Like it's so easy to use Amazon. Yes, you do have to more actively price check what you're buying on Amazon these days and make the question of, is it worth walking to the retail store to uh, save myself a couple dollars vis-a-vis the convenience of having it shipped to my house, especially if it's something heavy. But that's my long way of saying, Alex, like I just, I don't know that an antitrust lawsuit is the thing that's going to move me. I, I would need to see something a little bit more human rightsy. Uh, but Ramya, what about you? Yeah, I have a no relationship with Amazon or like a very, very arm's length relationship. So it really doesn't affect me personally. But what you're saying, Dave, about um, whether or not this hits our awareness, I think it does, uh, like, regardless of the premise, regardless of whether you think it's, you know, important or not, when stuff like this comes out, the bare bones of it, at least, or just like the bare basics of what's going on, at least puts us in that, oh, yeah, there. this is an actual entity. Like, we're not just hitting buttons. We're not just giving our money away. This is this, you know, giant corporation that m- so many of us use on such a regular basis. And we do it almost unconsciously, right? Like, we do it without necessarily thinking about the, the what we're putting in and what we're willing to take out of it or what we're willing to just like put aside as and eh, not my problem yeah um it's very convenient so at that level i think that there is some rigor like there's some point to having lawsuits like this no matter whether it affects you personally or whether tomorrow you're gonna say yeah i'm gonna spend my dollar at amazon or not yeah you know ramia you're exactly right that something like price fixing which is essentially the allegation here that there's some Mm -hmm. kind of false inflation of prices that is a big deal in the in the broader conversation that we're having here about the cost of living and affordability Uh, alex what about you how does a story like this end up moving your perception of amazon you know i i've started to try I, I, you always want to be a conscious consumer. You yes. always want to try to do the best you can, but it can be very challenging. You, you mentioned, Dave, it's just the convenience, the ease of access, the ease of use, the infrastructure that Amazon has to be able to deliver products overnight and you get it the next day with the single S- click of day. a button. Same day, dude. Same day, uh, depending yeah. on, on when you're ordering it. And it's just, you can't match that with any other like online retailer i find even ones that come close you're you're not getting to the same speed and a reliability and a convenience factor so i i kind of agree with you that you know yes it's important to investigate these allegations and see them through but unless it gets into these 
these human issues where it's really about, oh, the exploitation of workers or something along this line. It's really hard to move off of that yeah. convenience of, of Amazon. Yeah, I mean, and, the, and there can be a conversation about a lack of bathroom breaks uh, that several several uh, Amazon employees have brought to the brought to the the equation to the conversation. Employees wearing diapers or peeing in jars because they're not given breaks because of the hyper efficiency of the system. And I think that as that conversation evolves, that's one that may influence me a little bit more. But Alex, you hit the word convenient. I hit the word convenient. Nazreen, you didn't say it outright. Right, but I think the word convenient applies as well. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of a disability conversation to this, as again, mm-hmm. four of us who do not drive, sometimes when it comes to getting bigger items, bulkier items, heavier items delivered, there's a real convenience here in Nazreen. It's tough to find an alternative when you think about efficiency, convenience, and price point. Yeah, you can't find really an alternative, an equal alternative to Amazon or some online um, website that, as you guys said, it delivers the same day, the next day, even in two days. I'm okay with that. Some things take a couple of weeks for other websites, and that's why I really appreciate Amazon in that sense. Um, For me, yeah, I would need to get somebody to drive me. I would need to take like two buses to get to the mall. It's just not convenient enough as Amazon. Yeah. So, yeah. Ramya, there's only about a minute on the clock here, but sometimes I do have that inner conflict within myself as a consumer who will use some of these services that, let's just call them a little bit closer to exploitative, but Mm -hmm. that are convenient. And I'm like, oh, I really wish I could do something better for the laborers in this industry, whether it be some of the food delivery stuff or whether it be things like Amazon. But again, I also can't drive. I can't hop in the car. I can't go make this move. So this convenience is almost like, oh, I'm just going to put my ethics aside because I need this convenience. Absolutely. And it comes from, honestly, a lot of resentment, right? Like we don't have or we haven't had or, you know, there's such a large community community of us who feel like we're just put aside all the time. So at least for me, the depth of it is like, OK, I finally have the options. I finally can get everything delivered to my fine, my house. I finally know what's on sale, whatever, whatever. And mm-hmm. um, I can do this all digitally without having to worry about all the other accommodations I need that will not be provided if I were to, like, walk in and try to do it. Oh, man, what a power rankings of ethics versus convenience (laughs) and throwing that disability spin and you're really getting somewhere. But, oh, man, the giant river retailer. Oh, I got a a problem. (laughs) I got a problem. (laughs) Alex, great topic. Thank you for bringing this story to the table. I think this is actually going to be the crux of a story I bring to the news panel on Friday as well alongside the Google antitrust lawsuit. A big thank you to Nazreen and a big thank you to Ramya as well. That's all the time there is for this abbreviated edition of Now with Dave Brown. Thank you for stopping by. Hope you enjoyed the diet version of Now with Dave Brown. The Now with Dave Brown Zero, if you will. Same great taste, less calories. The show kicks off again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time, ideally. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.